0: Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now before I introduce our guests this week, I just want to say that we are nearing 100,000 subscriptions Uh, on the channel now, uh, which is great news. Uh, But if you want to make it 100,000 for Christmas, then please do subscribe. Uh, You can just simply go to the button where it says subscribe, Uh, it's a red button, and then there's one next to it which is a bell, uh, which is notifications. What that means is you get notifications of uh, all of our programmes as they come up. So uh, please do do that, won't you? uh now my guest today is somebody who was on the channel towards the very beginning i'm very pleased he's come back uh brendan o'neill is journalist and columnist and editor of spiked online he's also very well known to you i'm sure for his numerous appearances right across the media uh how are you then brendan i'm good thanks peter how are you oh not so bad um from which tier are you talking to us
1: i'm speaking to you from tier two so i have I've had some of my liberties restored, but not all of them. I mean, I'm in the kind of halfway house between liberty and tyranny.
0: How does it actually how do you deal with it personally in your own life, Brendan? I mean, how how far do you go along with it? You know what? What's your approach? Uh,
1: My approach is that the whole thing is uh, horrendous and it makes increasingly little sense. And I find it incredibly frustrating. I was against the first lockdown, even back in March and April. There weren't that many of us who were critical of the lockdown back then. But I've always been wary of lockdown as an approach to something like COVID-19 or any kind of virus, because I just don't think it works. You know, you can't hide a virus away. You can't put it in a cupboard and, and hope that it disappears. It's always going to spread. It's always going to come back. It's always going to do what it does. So I was always of the opinion that the best option was that we should take certain measures, definitely offer protection to the elderly and the medically vulnerable, but allow everyone else to judge their risks for themselves, carry on working, carry on socialising. I think this government made a catastrophic error back in March and it's now finding itself going in and out of lockdown and we're destroying the economy. So. In terms of how I deal with it, I find myself increasingly frustrated that we seem to live under a government that promised us we would take back control, but has actually assumed more control over our lives than any other government in living memory.
0: And that really is something that can't just simply be, um, you know, reeled back on. I mean, once things are in place, it's, isn't it the nature of these things that they just stay in place?
1: I think that's a really important point um you know many people have said throughout history that it's it's very easy to give your freedoms away or to have them taken away it's much more difficult to get them back again and um i think we can see this actually in the way people talk about the new normal i find the new normal to be one of the most terrifying phrases of our age it makes me think of brave new world you know this new normal that experts cleverer people than us have designed for us which we will all soon be living in Uh, jonathan van tam gave a glimpse of it when he said you know maybe we'll be wearing masks for years maybe we'll be socially distancing for years and i think that kind of uh the the promise of a new normal is one that that horrifies me and what it speaks to i think is that um when people assume almost total control over our lives to the extent where they could tell us when we could leave our house, who we can hug at Christmas, whether we can go to work or not, what we should be eating in pubs if we want to enjoy a drink. I mean incredible amounts of control over how we live. They're not just going to relinquish that, they're not just going to give that up and There are a lot of people out there who like telling people what to do, and they've had a real taste for authoritarianism over the past year. And I think it's going to be a really big wrestle to get our freedoms back from those who've taken them away.
0: Have you been surprised, though, by the way in which many people, at least in this country, have responded? I mean, in terms of going along with it?
1: i have been surprised um uh, uh, you know i think uh, initially i was incredibly disappointed when i when such vast numbers of people were telling opinion pollsters that they thought lockdown was the right approach if anything they wanted the lockdown to last longer and to be firmer I was really disappointed with that. i was it, it was it was upsetting for me, you know, having been on the side of majoritarian opinion for the past four years, probably for the first time in my life uh, in relation to Brexit, to suddenly find myself a, as a, a small minority who was saying, "You know, let's not lock down." So that was a bit distressing. and I think but I think it's become more complicated over the year. I think initially people were in favor of a short, sharp lockdown because let's not forget. Boris promised us it would last for three weeks. And it only had one aim. The aim was simply to prevent the NHS from being overwhelmed by COVID cases lots of people thought okay that sounds sensible we can cope with three weeks let's do it but of course it morphed into three months and then it became six months and then we had another lockdown and we're probably going to have another one in january and the aim now is almost to prevent anyone from getting COVID 19 which was never the aim in the first place so there's been mission creep there's been an extraordinary amount of mission creep in relation to lockdown authoritarianism so i think People have had the wool pulled over their eyes to the to a certain extent. They were promised it would be a short, uh, you know, a, a quick dose of medicine, but actually it's turned out to be almost a year-long experiment in extraordinary levels of authoritarianism. I think my impression from speaking to people I know and this includes people who are pro-lockdown as well as people who are anti-lockdown. I think most people are Publicly, they say they're in favour of the lockdown because that's the done thing. And if an opinion pollster phones you up and says, do you think we should lock down? You say yes, because you don't want to be called a granny killer. You don't want to be demonised as someone who who doesn't care about people's health and so on. But I think in their day to day lives, people are finding ways around the lockdown. So it's, it's a it's a kind of very British approach where publicly we say, yes, of course, let's do the right thing. But privately, we know that there's more to life than hiding from a virus. We also have to connect with people. We have to visit loved ones. We have to visit lovers. We have to go to the pub. We have to do all those things that make life worth living. So I think people are... uh, I think most people are breaking the rules, but publicly they will say, yes, the rules are a good idea.
0: I, I would go along with that. I think that's my experience too. When you look at some of the regulations though, Brendan, Uh, take pubs for example it it seems almost that they are actually being targeted you know doesn't it there's there is absolutely no logic to it
1: Uh, i think that's absolutely right they there's no other explanation except that certain people in positions of authority hate pubs i mean that's the only explanation i can come up with for some of the new rules which as you say make no sense whatsoever and um The rules seem increasingly arbitrary. They seem strange. They don't make sense to people. I think that's one of the reasons people are finding a way around them, because no one is going to live under rules that don't make sense and which do not seem to have any logic beyond controlling fun. I mean, that seems to be one of the uh, uh, drivers behind the pubs rules in particular. But if you look at the pubs rules, this idea... In tier two, for example, where many of us currently live, um, you have to have a substantial meal if you want to go to a pub. That makes no sense. You know, how on earth does ordering burger and chips make you safer from a virus? Why is that different to ordering six pints? Um, and and the point is, I think that a lot of people in officialdom just don't like the idea of people going to a pub and getting drunk. They don't like the idea of old fashioned wet pubs. You know, wet pubs are those kinds of pubs. There are still a handful in existence which just serve booze, mostly to working class people, let's be honest about it. Very often to older people. There's actually one near where I live. And um, when I used to pop in there for a drink sometimes, if I ever did that at lunchtime, you just see all these old men sitting at tables, reading a newspaper, probably widowers, you know, having two or three pints to pass the day, a really important form of social engagement or just getting outside of the house for those kinds of people. And I often think to myself, what became of those old men during the lockdown? You know, What did they do? Where did they go? Presumably they were stuck at home and had very little connection with the outside world. And that I find really, depressing. But I think um, those kinds of pubs, wet pubs, where people go to have a drink are seen as unacceptable. And they have been for a long time by the kind of do gooders of the public health lobby. And I think some of those um, public health types, and also government ministers, uh, seem to be using COVID to pursue some fairly nanny state classist policies, designed simply to control the kind of joy people can pursue. And I think the more they do that, the more people will say, listen, what's really going on here? Are you actually trying to protect us from a virus? Or are you just trying to control certain aspects of human behaviour that you happen to disapprove of? And I I hope more people start to ask that question.
0: I think it's a very, I find it heartbreaking actually, uh, you know, uh, what you just described, Brendan. When, When you talk about class here, I think this is an important point. Is it your perception Maybe it's too broad a, a brushstroke here, but is it your perception that people, middle class people tend to be more in favor of lockdown, you know that that is my perception anyway uh, that somehow this is as you say, do gooding, you know?
1: Yes, I think there's I, I think there's a really important class dynamic to the lockdown situation. Uh, and I think um, primarily it's because. There are lots of people out there, and you and I, Peter, are probably in that group, although we also happen to be um, free thinkers. But there are lots of people out there who could carry on working during lockdown, right? They were at home, uh, they could still do their jobs, they could still have their Zoom meetings, they could get their food delivered by the young guys working for Deliveroo. uh, And it was a nice experiment for some of those people. You know, three months at home, many of them might have a garden. Uh, they have open spaces, their house is probably quite large, their jobs are secure, either because they work in the public sector and they were handsomely furloughed, or because they can do kind of expertise or academic work or journalistic work from home. There were lots of people who are comfortable, which meant that the lockdown was probably quite a pleasurable experience. But then there's another section of society. Who either had to keep on working you know people who work in supermarkets um uh, dustbin men you know of course there was never any discussion about furloughing dustbin men can you imagine the country would go to rack and ruin if that happened um delivery guys you know all sorts of people who were still working and i've seen a few people say that you know there wasn't really a lockdown at all all there was was comfortable people staying at home for a few months and working class people doing work for them, still farming their food, delivering their food, stacking the shelves in supermarkets and so on. So there was a really important class divide, I think, in relation to lockdown. Um, And I think that the media didn't reflect the breadth of opinion in this country, because of course the media is dominated by the kind of people I've just described, people from largely middle class backgrounds, fairly comfortable lives, you know, probably went to university, probably live quite comfortably, and they didn't reflect what was happening to the rest of the country, where millions of people have been set up to lose their jobs. You know, furlough for many people is really a, a, an extended form of un, of employment. As soon as it ends, they will be unemployed. Um, small businesses have collapsed. High streets have collapsed. Small retailers are going to collapse, and the massive businesses like Amazon are going to benefit from that. All these incredibly important shifts are taking place that are going to have a very punishing effect on um, working class people, lower, mark- lower middle class people, small businesses, those kinds of people are going to suffer enormously. Whereas massive corporations have benefited, and the middle classes have benefited as well. That class divide i think is incredibly important and i think those tensions are probably going to come more to the surface over the next few months
0: i, I, I think so it's interesting as well there's people you described there who work at home and middle class people who glorified working from home should be careful what they uh, wish for because they could find themselves suffering the mm-hmm. same kind of outsourcing that working class people did at the very beginning of globalization
1: Absolutely right. And I, I I often think that in relation to university lecturers in particular, you have all these university lecturers who are saying, you know, we can't possibly go back to university. We can't have face to face lectures. It's not safe for us. We'll do it all by video. And I'm sure there are lots of university administrators who are stroking their chins and thinking that's a good idea. Let's make a few videos keep them in a library and sack all these lecturers and save ourselves lots and lots of money and just do video conferencing and video um, lecturing from now on. I do think they have to be very careful uh, that they don't get what they're talking about because um, if, if we really do move into the so-called new normal in which everything is done via Zoom, um, every conference is done online, People are not needed in a physical space anymore. Apparently, you don't need that physical physical connection. We're constantly being told. Um, a lot of people will lose work as a result of that. If everything shifts to being online or being pre recorded, um, there are lots of middle class people who who may uh, rue the day when they cheered on the lockdown and cheered on these massive social and political and economic shifts that have taken place in the UK over the past year. Um, uh, that, I think, is, is is a little bit of a little way off, but I think what's going to happen in the short term very quickly is uh, working class communities are going to feel the rough edge of these policies in a way that I think the government doesn't understand yet. And we have to bear in mind this is a government which enjoys its healthy uh, democratic mandate primarily as a result of voters in red-wall areas who turned in their millions away from the Labour Party to give Boris Johnson an unprecedented mandate. If the government now treats those communities like rubbish and conspires in the destruction of their high streets and their small businesses and their jobs, I think it could face punishment of the ballot box in the future. So if the government is serious about levelling up, it really needs to start thinking very seriously about how to uh, recover those areas that are gonna suffer so enormously as a result of the lockdown experiment.
0: Yes, I mean, you you wrote recently actually, Brandon, about uh, how Boris had sort of bottled it on the culture wars. And I think at the time you related it to the Red Wall because uh, not only say COVID and the effects of COVID, but The very things that those people in the red wall care about cultural issues that you've written about um, the government appear to be utterly spineless on those too i mean do you think they've lost the red wall vote um i think I, th- I think
1: they've probably still got it for the time being, only because Labour is so dreadful. I mean, the, you know, the great renewal of the Labour Party under Keir Starmer, that hasn't quite happened. And and in my personal view, Keir Starmer is proving to be really tepid and boring and tame, technocratic. Um, and of course, you know, as I've argued for years and years and years, working class voters are not stupid. They understand politics and they know that Keir Starmer was the author of Labour's disastrous second referendum policy, which would have involved overthrowing or voiding the largest democratic vote in the history of this country, something that millions of red wall voters voted for, which is uh, Brexit of course. They know that Keir Starmer Pushed Jeremy Corbyn, who was a natural Eurosceptic, towards the second referendum policy. They don't forget those things. So, um, Labour, I don't think, is going to recover the Red Wall areas anytime soon. So, the Tories will probably benefit from that. I think they will hold on to these votes by default for the time being. But that could change because I do think. Boris is proving to be a bottler. I think he is bottling out of some of the big issues of our time. He he was not nearly vocal enough during the Black Lives Matter uprising, for example, when statues were being pulled down and um, old comedy shows were being banned and university curricula were being supposedly decolonized. Uh, and and when you had massive national institutions like the Natural History Museum um, expressing shame about Charles Darwin, Charles Darwin arguably the most important scientific figure in history, or um, you had the British Museum saying that it would hide things and and express shame about the people who founded the museum, I mean we had this extraordinary bizarre outburst of self-loathing among the institutions of this country, the institutions that are supposed to stand up for cultural excellence and for the very good British tradition of understanding the world, understanding nature, understanding history. Those institutions completely went crazy this year in a way that I think was quite striking. And as all of that was happening, Boris was not saying the kinds of things he should have been saying. He should have been making speeches about the importance of British culture. He should have been making speeches defending British history. He should have been making speeches saying we don't tear down statues in this country because we recognise that history is a complicated, complex, colourful process. He should have been making all these kinds of comments but he kind of took a back seat he said a couple of things here and there about the winston churchill statue in westminster but more broadly he took a back seat and i think that was a real test for boris and i think he failed it because there was an open invitation to him to um, get involved in the culture wars to get on the right side in the culture wars to defend um uh, the ideals of freedom excellence and understanding history in a clear way and he didn't do it and i think lots of voters will have clocked that as well and they will be asking themselves why is boris not taking a stand against the kind of woke divisive identitarian politics that we don't like
0: yes because i I think a lot of the of the the vote actually you could say the last general election it's hard to actually uh bring data on this out because i don't think it is there but a lot of it would have been on these cultural issues, even if just in, in the sidelines. Um, you know, you say he's a bottler, but at the same time, you, you mentioned about these institutions over the summer it was quite extraordinary. Uh, you say they went sort of crazy. Do you think, though, that they were using Covid? I don't mean to be conspiratorial here, but th- it was seen as a kind of opportunity to to use that word to reset the culture. That's how it does appear to me.
1: Yeah, I think it's in my mind, it's more I think it's more that the establishment has gone mad. I mean, I really when I think back over the past year and think about all the various things they've done, I do think there were flashes of madness. Um, And that's the only way I can understand it. The reason I'm a bit reluctant to um, talk about the, the idea of a reset or, as you say, you know i definitely don't subscribe to any conspiracy theories about covid having been a pandemic or anything like that that's i'm not interested in those arguments the reason i'm not i primarily don't think they're useful is because i i think officialdom at the moment is is too useless even to conspire in something like that they, they i just don't think they have the gumption or the wherewithal to do anything that the conspiracy theorists are talking about the way i see it is that they've kind of gone mad Uh, and i know that's not a very useful way to describe it but i do feel that that's what's happening it's been a long time coming and you peter will know this because you've been writing about these issues for a long time in relation to culture and in relation to cultural cowardice and censoriousness and uh, the reluctance to stand up for those kinds of values um that's been a long time coming it's been growing in Universities, for example, which have become factories of censorship and conformism rather than citadels of uh, intellectual experimentation. It's been growing in art galleries, which have, you know, willingly withdrawn exhibitions if they, they cause offence. It's been growing in the theatre world, which have, which has, has also um, self-censored in response to threats of violence or threats of boycott. You know, for a long time, we've seen the cultural institutions and the academic institutions in this country losing their nerve, caving into woke mobs and refusing to do what they're supposed to do, which is to defend cultural freedom, freedom of expression and freedom of the intellectual mind. And so that's been happening for quite a long time. And I think what has happened in 2020 is that all of that stuff reached a crescendo because you had the covid thing which meant everyone was forced to stay indoors and go slightly stir crazy then the lockdown ended with the explosion of the black lives matter protests where you had this huge crazy um identitarian release of energy which then i think exacerbated all those trends and that's when you have these institutions coming out and saying well yes we must express regret about the existence of Charles Darwin, or we must self-flagellate endlessly for our links to slavery 300 years ago. You had all these institutions lining up to express essentially self-loathing, to say we are disgusting institutions and we should be ashamed of ourselves. That's what they did. But I think it the way I see it is that it was it was the nadir of something that had been happening for a long time which is the decay of cultural confidence in this country and that's something that boris and others in his government could do something about that's something they could talk about something they could be honest about but they've backed off and um i think that's probably one of the greatest errors they've made this year i think the lockdown was an error but in some ways i think their unwillingness to defend um the uh, cultural uh, liberal gains made by this country over the past 300 or 400 years, in the long term, I think that could prove to be the greater error.
0: Uh, it's interesting that, you know, when Boris did finally say something about Churchill, you know, and the, and the Churchill statue, sort of almost he'd been dragged in front of a microphone. Uh, people felt very happy about it. They only wanted I think reassurance and they they just wanted to feel that someone was sort of fighting their corner and and yet as you say nothing since then i think particularly too i think something you wrote recently brandon about his his lack of response to or support for president macron where that was a perfect case where you had freedom of expression and you had the president in france saying what he should be saying but nada nothing from from britain
1: that to me that was so disturbing i mean we had firstly the beheading of um samuel patty the school teacher whose supposed crime was to show caricatures of muhammad to his um class of pupils in a discussion about freedom of speech for doing that he was beheaded in the streets of uh, on the outskirts of paris absolutely horrific crime a crime not only against one man but against the french republic and against the idea of freedom of speech um there was so little said about that by uh, government ministers in the uk france is our neighboring country it's 30 or 40 miles away um it's it's our oldest frenemy in a sense you know we've we've had lots of conflicts with france but we've had lots of connections with france too um they said almost nothing about that and and strikingly teaching unions you know teaching unions said very little also or when they did eventually make a statement it was incredibly um, cowardly and timid and didn't mention the fact that this was a radical Islamist and that he killed someone for the crime of um, essentially showing a cartoon of Muhammad to uh, school children so that was a really disturbing episode. I, I'm not a particular fan of President Macron, um, but he I thought he handled the Patti atrocity incredibly well. He um, defended freedom of speech. Every school child in France uh, took part in a minute's silence for Patti and also had a lesson on freedom of speech in his honor. And I think school kids in Britain should have done the same thing. This is our neighbouring country where someone was beheaded for a speech crime and we should have spoken about that more clearly. The government's unwillingness to do that, I think, was very revealing because it does suggest that it is less um, capable than we might have thought of taking the right side in the culture wars, of standing up to identitarianism, and of being willing to say things that might prove controversial to guardianistas, but would probably touch a nerve with most ordinary people. In this case, what they could have said would have been, uh, you know, nobody has the right not to be offended. Everyone has the right to criticize religion, mock religion, and to express themselves in any way they choose and no one should ever be attacked or persecuted for doing that. If, if the government had made a statement like that in response to the Patti killing, that would have been incredibly powerful. It also could have encouraged school in Britain to learn about freedom of speech as they did in France, but none of that happened. And over the year, lots of these things have taken place you know terrible attacks in france also in nice there was an attack Uh, three people were slaughtered for the crime of being christians and no word about that either i mean i the bishops of england got more angry about the internal market bill than they did about the murder of three christians in nice in our neighboring country and that tells you a lot about the rot in some of our institutions in this case in the Church of England, they express no fury over those atrocities in France, um, and what what this suggests, I think, is that this this failure to offer solidarity to France when it was suffering uh, terrible attacks by Islamist extremists, that suggests that our government has lost its nerve, and if it can't even stand with a neighbouring country when its when its people are being attacked for expressing themselves then you do wonder when it is going to stand up for any kind of values at all. So that was a shameful episode on the part of our government.
0: Brendan, what do you make of the, the fact that you just mentioned there Samuel Patty beheaded uh, for basically exercising free speech, explaining free speech? Uh, this was a, a terrible murder that happened in a, in a country which is near to us, but is still in another country. And yet, floyd george George Floyd, sorry, killed in America, um, or you know, basically for reasons that we know. and what happened after that was that there was a sort of, at least in the West, an eruption uh, of action and protest and all the things we've just discussed. But there has not been, from what I can see, in any Western country, any similar phenomenon basically because of what happened in France this is extraordinary is it not I mean shouldn't we all be putting out pledges saying why we stand for free speech just like we did with racism
1: absolutely and I think the difference in the response to the killing of George Floyd and the killing of Samuel Paty I think is incredibly revealing and really also quite depressing because you know everyone was horrified by the killing of george floyd everyone who saw that video of him being uh, the the knee on his neck and it was an incredibly unforgiving horrific thing to watch and people around the world were shocked by that and i think people around the world were right to ask questions but to do so to the neglect of so many other issues and so many other tragedies that took place this year. I think that's really something that's worth interrogating and thinking about why that happened. I think what happened after the killing of George Floyd, um, I think the response to it fed into a pre-existing narrative. And the pre-existing narrative was one which says that modern America is a pretty evil country it suffers from the original sin of racism, Um, it's not a nice place, Britain is not far behind in the stakes of evil, you know, we've got the crimes of imperialism and slavery to contend with, we should take part in far more self-flagellation about all the awful things we've done. Um, In other European countries there's also that sense of historical self-loathing, Uh, Belgium, for example, Germany, and France too, you know, this sense that we are sinful countries born in sin, we've done terrible things historically, you know, that kind of what I view as a very regressive way of understanding our countries, a very backward way, a very... um, a a way of understanding our countries that doesn't appreciate the complexities or the wonderful nature of the things that our countries have done. That narrative had existed for a while, and I think what happened in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd is that all those things became a massive flashpoint. And the killing of George Floyd, the, the protests about George Floyd soon became about other things entirely. So the protests about George Floyd in Oxford, for example, became about taking down the statue of Cecil Rhodes. Um, The protests about George Floyd in Australia became about the way in which Aboriginal people are treated in Australia. So there was this strange thing where that terrible killing in Minneapolis gave license to all sorts of strange woke identitarian demands and and really intensified them and that was a moment at which I think some of our politicians could have stood up and said listen we all agree the killing of George Floyd was horrific we all agree the police should treat people equally regardless of their skin color or where they come from but what's happening now is something different what's happening now is an anti-Western anti-American anti-British form of woke politics, which is pro-censorship, which is going to devastate uh, our universities by um, filling them with even more nonsense, and which is going to divide people further through pushing ideas like critical race theory, which says essentially that all black people are victims and all white people are racists. Politicians should have stood up and said, listen, we criticize the killing of George Floyd too, but we're not going to open the floodgates to these divisive identitarian agendas. But they didn't do that. And I think the way in which um, the George Floyd killing became almost the defining event of the year, far, far more than Samuel Paty, as you say, I think that reveals that lots of different agendas have been attached to the George Floyd killing and it's being exploited, I would say, by certain people on the left to push through an agenda that they had already wanted to push through. And I think that's pretty unforgivable as well.
0: Uh, You you mentioned there, you know, uh, basically all the strange things that happened in the woke agenda in in the wake of George Floyd. Uh, Of course, Trump did actually say some things. and He's one of the few politicians who talked about critical race theory by name. Um, Would you say that what seems to be obviously, you know, a new president, President Biden, would you say that that change, will be seen as a vindication by the woke agenda?
1: Yes, that's what worries me about Biden's victory. Um, You know, I think it will embolden the more regressive elements in Western politics. It will embolden the woke agenda. I think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are they're woke people. I mean, Harris has her pronouns in her Twitter biography. Now, that might sound like a small thing, but it's actually incredibly significant, because declaring your pronouns, telling people you are a he or a she or a they, that is really a way of indicating indicating to people that you are part of the correct crowd. You have the correct ideology, you have the correct views, you're woke, you're a good person. And i think things like that are very significant i also think it's significant that joe biden played a key role in pushing the, the the rape panic on campuses and the idea that um men accused of rape on campuses should not enjoy all the rights of due process he was quite central to those kinds of arguments he also pushes the new um divisive uh, ideas of of racial identity politics so the fact that those two now are essentially the The two most powerful people in the world i think is really important that we've we've heard stories from the biden camp that one thing they want to do for example is create a a situation where countries can be declared to be climate criminals if they don't adhere to the eco agenda or if they destroy their own environments in a way that is unacceptable to america or the united nations or whoever else it might be so We could see woke imperialism before long. We could see America throwing its weight around in relation to smaller countries, but doing so in the language of wokeness and environmentalism and political correctness. And I think that worries me enormously. In relation to Trump, I've never been Trump's biggest fan. I think he has lots of problems, but the fact of the matter is that this year, Trump made a few speeches that had me cheering out loud and had me wondering why other politicians in the West aren't saying similar things. He did an excellent speech on cancel culture at Mount Rushmore where he he said cancel culture is authoritarian, it's about forcing people to bend the knee to an ideology they don't like, it's tyrannical and it runs counter to American values. He did have he made some very good comments on critical race theory he did a very good speech saying we're losing sight of martin luther king's vision uh, where people should be judged by character rather than color and we're heading into a world where color has come to be everything i agreed with all the points he made and my the question i was asking myself is why boris hasn't made similar speeches why other western leaders haven't made similar speeches macron made some good comments too about the threat of islamist terrorism and the importance of freedom of speech but all of that stuff is still there isn't enough of it there isn't enough people in political life and in public life defending the values of freedom defending the values of tolerance and defending the values of equality of opportunity and instead too many of our political class are going down the rabbit hole of identity politics and woke politics. And Biden's victory, unfortunately, I think will push that process further. And we have to wait and see if there'll be another populist backlash. Uh,
0: Brendan, on freedom of speech, you've written about this for years. In fact, you did a report five years ago, I think. Uh, Was it about campuses, wasn't it? And free speech on campuses. Mm. Uh, Do you think that the situation is worse now in more restricted than then i mean do do you think it's actually become more embedded
1: yeah so um spike did a uh, i think we did three reports in total looking at the state of freedom of speech on campuses in the uk um we were inspired by a group in the us called fire um the foundation for individual rights in education which does a similar report in res- in relation to american universities and what we found is that freedom of speech on British campuses is pretty much dead. Um, it's, it's in a very parlous state. There are numerous codes of conduct and speech codes and no platforming rules, which essentially make it very difficult to express certain ideas in a university. But more importantly, there's a real culture of self-censorship. I think people get a very strong sense and not necessarily a wrong sense, but if they say certain things they will be demonized they will be hounded they might even be thrown out of their jobs people are people have a very clear understanding that there are certain things you're not allowed to say anymore for example on the issue of transgenderism uh, we've seen numerous feminists being no platformed from universities because they don't think a man can become a woman and they question aspects of transgenderism and doing that on a british campus has become tantamount to blasphemy. And most people respond to that fact by simply not expressing themselves. So there's a real culture of censorship coming from both university administrators and also from student unions. And also there's a culture of um, self-censorship. And I experienced some of that myself when I was invited to speak at, at Oxford University in 2015. I was supposed to speak with um, timothy stanley in a debate about abortion but it was cancelled because a group of feminists threatened to turn up uh, because they thought it was unacceptable for two men to have a discussion about abortion and they said they were going to turn up and um, prevent the debate from going ahead and the authorities church college which is where it was due to take place they agreed with the protesters and they cancelled the event and that was a good example of how you often have um, a connection between the intolerant millennial generation or the intolerant generation Z, and um, officialdom or the authorities who are too cowardly to stand up for the values of freedom of speech and intellectual inquiry. So I think on universities at the moment, the key problem is that the new intake of students are the kinds of young people who have unfortunately been educated and socialized to believe that they should never have to experience offensive ideas so they tend to be you know pretty snowflakey pretty reluctant to engage in free robust debate and then on the other side you have too many university authorities who are unwilling to put the clear frank case for the right to cause offence the right to inquire into all ideas, and the right to question orthodoxies. And the combination of those two things, I think, means that universities have become pretty censorious and sometimes quite chilling places.
0: We're finishing off now, but, you know, more than anything else, I think the comments that I get and questions I get from people is, you know, we all see this, we all see the restrictions on free speech happening. Uh, across the board to a greater or lesser extent but what do we do what do we do about it we've been talking about politicians standing up but what do you think people can do because it's not like we have to explain the issue or anything to anyone they understand the issue
1: well that's the million dollar question and it's something i ask myself all the time what can people do about this Pretty terrible situation we find ourselves in, where freedom of speech is so undervalued, in even in the institutions that ought to be defending it. Um, I think a lot of people are asking themselves that question. There have been some really positive um, flashpoints over the past few years. You know, some students have set up free speech um, uh, societies in order to have as many debates as that as they want um of course we have the free speech union set up by um toby young which i think is doing great work and we have our own form of media too you know your podcasts other podcasts where people are creating new spaces where there are no restrictions on what can be said and where people are free to question the new orthodoxies as as frankly and uh, as they want so there are positive things happening but i do think that question of what more can we do is something we have to ask ourselves and i think uh the key thing is is to be a bit brave and and to always refuse to self-censor because i think lots of people would feel inspired by that i mean i think one person who's done that very well is um jk rowling now she's not someone I agree with on most political issues, particularly Brexit. She's very anti-Brexit. I'm very pro-Brexit. But her, un, her, her willingness to carry on criticising the excesses of transgenderism, even in the face of death threats and rape threats and misogynistic abuse and so on, that, I think, is quite inspiring. Now, of course, she's too big to be cancelled. She's too famous. She's too rich. Um, She's a global phenomenon, so it's not easy to drag her down, whereas it is easier to drag other people down. However, I think the more we have people like that who are willing to put their necks on the line, the more it will send a signal to others that they should try the same thing. So I think that's really the only approach, and I think we have to put more pressure on government ministers and politicians to take a similar approach. Because unless politicians start to put their necks on the line and to stand up for the right of people to express themselves, then I think lots of other people um, probably won't feel the confidence to do that in their own lives. So put pressure on politicians to defend freedom of speech, put pressure on Boris to stop bottling out of these key issues. And in our own lives and our own public lives, we should say what we want to say and say it clearly and frankly, and then deal with the consequences. The more of us that do that, the more I think we will start to resuscitate freedom of speech.
0: Well, thank you for that very much, Brandon, thank you. Uh, A great way to end. Um, I do hope that you have a lovely Christmas. And, uh, and that you hug a lot of people and you, you meet up and you <laughs> don't all wear masks and everything. Um, and uh, look, uh, maybe see you in the new year, Brendan. And uh, thank you for that hopeful and constructive uh, point at the end. There. It's very, very important. Thanks. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, so what you're saying is uh, we shall see you next time. Thank you.